Hi, this is Maury Moreland Morrison, here to tell you GEICO has more than just great savings. Much more. GEICO's been around for more than 75 years, back when they were using Morse code. Sorry, that's just my sense of humor. What's more, with GEICO, you get 24-7 access to licensed agents on the app, online, or over the phone, so you can talk to them at night or in the morning. So forevermore, just know that no other auto insurer has more more than GEICO. More power to you. GEICO. Expect great savings and a whole lot more. Welcome to CrimeWire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case to CrimeWire or suggest a topic for a future show, please email us at thenewcrimewire at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at The New Crime Wire. My name is Denny Griffin, and on today's show, my co-host, Delilah Jones, and I are going to talk with Lyle Sharman. Lyle is a licensed private investigator and owner of United Private Investigations. He started his career in law enforcement in 1985 and was soon offered a position to be a bodyguard for the CEO of Mandalay Bay Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. He spent the next 21 years as a security expert an executive personnel protection and director of security and surveillance with Mandalay Bay. He was also a criminal law instructor from Mojave Community College and a tactical trainer and use of force instructor for the International Police Tactical Training Academy. Lyle is a nationally known expert in missing persons cases. He has worked and solved over 37 missing persons cases and has appeared on several television shows and has regularly appeared in the nationally recognized crime show, Crime Watch Daily. Lyle, welcome to CrimeWire. Thank you. It's great to be here. And you certainly have a number of cases uh, to talk about, but today I'd like to focus on the case of Nancy Hartz. And before I turn it over to you, I'll give our listeners some background information on what transpired before you got involved in the case. At 71 years old and with two marriages behind her, Kingman, Arizona widow Nancy Ray Hartz had just about given up on romance. But thanks to the miracles of the Internet, along came a man who called himself Ray. There was an instant connection. Ray claimed to own a ranch in Utah. He would fly in, spend a few days with Nancy, and then be gone again for up to three or four months at a time. In the interim, they communicated by email. After about a year of this primarily online relationship, Nancy issued an ultimatum to Ray. He could either start making himself more available or find another lady friend. Ray was at Nancy's door the next day and became a regular fixture in her life. According to Nancy's daughter, Sherry, he convinced her that they had to get out of Arizona because there were lava pits under the state and that the financial institutions were no longer stable. Whether it was Ray's insistence or not, Nancy took action. 
Out of the blue, she traded in her Cadillac, had her Social Security payments transferred to a debit card, and sold the home she'd lived in most of her life for $50,000. They were going to leave together and start a new life somewhere else, but they didn't know where, Sherry said. Sherry and Nancy's other kids tried to convince her to at least keep the house in case anything went wrong, but Nancy was set on running off with the man Sherry hadn't even met yet. They left on July 2nd. The last time we spoke with her was on June 5th, and her last words to me that day were, well, let God's will be done. So, okay, Mama, I love you. And that was the last time I talked with her, said Sherry. But then finally, two months after she seemed to drop off the face of the earth, Nancy's loved ones started getting emailed. She claimed to be happier than ever living off uh, somewhere in the mountains of New Mexico. But Nancy's kids weren't so sure. Just from the tone and everything of those emails, we knew that it wasn't her writing, said Sherry. And when Sherry looked closer, she realized it wasn't even her mother's email. Two of the letters had been changed around. It was enough for Sherry's sister, Denise, to go to the authorities. But when police started digging, they got a very different story from other than Nancy herself, or so it seemed. The deputy who took the initial report was able to talk to someone who indicated that they were Nancy, said Mojave County Chief Deputy Sheriff Rodney Head, and that they wanted to start a new life somewhere and were not interested in having any further contact with their family. So the case really wasn't going anywhere. It was devastating news, no matter how Nancy's kids looked at it. Either someone was pretending to be their mom for who knows why or what, or their mom was alive and well and suddenly wanted nothing to do with them. Even though they had no hard evidence, what Nancy's family did have was a story. And younger daughter Denise took it straight to the Daily Miner and reporter Doug McMurdo. After hearing all the strange details, McMurdo started typing, and soon the story of Nancy Hartz was front-page news locally. But even he had no way of knowing what an impact his article would have. After it was published, there was an outpouring of concern from the community, and I know that people made Denise aware of a couple of private eyes, and one of them, Lyle Sharman, actually started working for her, and he was able to, as they say, break the case open, said McGurdo. So, Lyle, that brings us up to your entering the case, and do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Well, you know, it's a lot of cases I've worked that are, you know, these missing missing person cases, and uh, this was, you know, similar. It was another case in Mojave County. There's a lot of cases that seem to happen in this county, um, especially out of the Kingman, Arizona area. So, you know, when I heard about it, you know, I'd read like a lot of people in the newspapers, and uh, but you see it all the time. And, and you know, with me, now I've got such a reputation doing these cases that everybody's reaching out to me, and so I have to kind of pick and pick and choose which cases I'm going to take and which ones I don't. And, and much of these, I actually work for free for the families and, and don't even charge them. So, you know, this case sounded pretty interesting. It was, uh, you know, it involves uh, an elderly person. Um, it also uh, had online dating issues and stuff. And it, it seemed interesting. It seemed like a case that I was 
you know, interested in. And uh, when the family contacted me, I definitely, uh, you know, I definitely wanted to meet with them and see if I could help them. Uh, based on your background and experience with missing persons and what the elements that uh, that the case seemed to contain, did you have initial thoughts on what had happened? Did you have some kind of a scenario going to your mind of what, what it looked like to you? Well, you know, you never know because, you know, when you, you hear these stories and families tell you, Initially, as you well know, you don't know who is telling the truth or who you can trust because, of course, you don't know these people. So, you know, the first thing I wanted to do was to meet with uh, the daughter, Denise, who had reached out to me and, you know, meet with her personally and kind of get a feel for her story, get a sense, you know, if she was telling me the truth and being honest. And uh, and really from the beginning, it, it seemed like much of what she said was, was definitely honest. You could see a lot of hurt in her, uh, a lot of concern, and things that really seem to make sense and be real. Um, I kind of operate off a trust and belief system, and, and I tell my clients this right up front, and that is that, you know, I'm trusting them. So everything they're telling me, you know, I'm taking it for face value that they're being honest about it. And I let them know that at any point I'm able to prove that they're not being honest, then that information will also be given to law enforcement from me. So, so it's in there, you know, they really need to know that. They need to know that they have to be honest with me, whether it's completely honest, whether they're, if they're hiding something, then they kind of probably get an idea right off the bat that I'm not going to be the guy because I'd come after them as well as I would come after anybody, regardless of the situation. So when it was all said and done, I really felt that they were being honest. I believed them. And, uh, and I really, really think that I got to a point that I felt that if I didn't take this case, that it would not be solved for them. Let me ask you about the excuse me the trust issue. Uh, you have to be, I would think, a very a very good reader of character because of your initial interviews and so forth, uh, where you're getting your basic information and and maybe making some decisions on you know is this a legitimate case or what's what's happening with it. Um, you you right at that point don't have physical evidence in front of you perhaps you're you're dealing with the individual and evaluating them as they speak to you and and evaluating their trustworthiness and and and, you know how far you can go with the information you're getting is uh is that a fair statement to make yeah absolutely and uh, you know again it's uh you know if you don't do this a lot and you don't have a lot of experience yourself, then it's going to be that much more difficult for you to to know if you can believe them, to get that gut feeling, um, you know, and to work off your instincts. And those are all things that, that come with years of not just being in law enforcement or investigations, but also working specific cases that have to do with what it is you're involved in. So, you know, you can be a great investigator, but if you don't investigate missing person cases, you're probably not going to be really good at it. There's certain things that obviously would transfer over, but not everything. So so really with me, you know, when I came into that, that case, you know, I'd already worked 30, 35 cases. And uh, so I had a lot of experience with missing person cases, interviewing family members, uh, working with local law enforcement, um, 
interviewing techniques, all that stuff. So like anything, you just perfect it. And uh, and really, like I said, I, at the end of it, and when it was all said and done, um, I felt confident that, that uh, the family was being honest with me about everything, and I was comfortable moving forward from that point. And the the sheriff's department had already been contacted previously? Yes. Yeah, the uh, the family, and specifically Denise, uh, one of the uh, daughters who lives in Kingman. There's another daughter, Sherry. She she lives up in the Prescott, Arizona area. But uh, Denise was really the uh, the driving force, and uh, she had already filed a police report with the sheriff's department and uh, wasn't getting any satisfaction, in her opinion. Of course, when I first took it over, you know, sometimes the law enforcement agency is doing everything they should be doing and the family just doesn't understand how the process works or you know they watch things on tv and they think that things happen that way but in this case um, it was obvious that that uh, that law enforcement was not really doing things the way that they should do it now when when you get involved in a case like this and law enforcement's already uh, been contacted is there a certain protocol you felt like? Do you go to the sheriff's department, introduce yourself, and say, "Hey, I've been retained to uh, to look into this," or how do you let the sheriff know that you're involved? Well, each case is different, um, and it depends what the initial circumstances are prior to that case. And in this particular case, you know, uh, Nancy's daughters had told me that they'd filed a, a police report and that a, an officer had come over and taken a report, and that they had begged him to make contact with their mother and uh, try to get her to uh, to come and meet with them and, and talk to them. That, that initial officer took the report, and then he and a uh, detective uh, used a phone number, a current phone number that, that Nancy Hartz was still, still thought to be operating. The phone was still active. Uh, they left a message. And then a person claiming to be Nancy Hartz had contacted the police department and told them that she was fine, she was well, that her kids were leeches, that they had uh, always tried to take her money. She wanted to start a new life, and she wanted that life to be as far away from her children as possible. Um, And so law enforcement took that at face value and went back to the kids and relayed that message and then told the children that, as far as they were concerned, quote, the case is closed. Um, (laughs) When I started it, you know, one of the first things after I heard that story is I started to really look into the relationship of Nancy Hartz and her kids, and I did that by asking the family to forward all the emails, whatever emails they'd had from their mom uh, throughout as far back as they ever had them. I wanted to look at letters. I wanted to look at anything that would show me what type of a relationship, photographs, whatever. And to me, it was pretty clear that they had a very good relationship with their mother, and it seemed very unrealistic that their mother would have ever made those comments. And uh, and I think with me, the fact that law enforcement was conducting a welfare check over a telephone uh, didn't really work well for me anyway. So, so I did convince uh, Denise to, to go with me to the sheriff's department and to talk them talk to them again. I try to take the, uh, you know, the, my client, um, whoever that may be, whether it's a daughter or, a, you know, husband, a wife, whatever. I, I always try to convince them to come with me, and I, I really tell them it's important that they come with me because 
law enforcement needs to know that this is a driving effort from from the family, not from me. Uh, I'm just there to help. And uh, so so she went with me, and we talked. And and again, you know, I I saw and I heard basically these uh, this agency just say, look, we're we're convinced that uh, that she's fine and well. And we've closed the case, and you know, unless you can bring us something more concrete. Um, we're satisfied that we did speak to her on the telephone and that uh, we've closed the case at this point. She just doesn't want to be with her kids. You, you know, I uh, I realize all jurisdictions uh, can be different, have different rules and procedures and so forth. But I, I recall that uh, when, uh, when I was working uh, in the police field several years ago, that if we got a, a check on the welfare a call and be, because maybe the person lived in our jurisdiction naturally, but if we went and found that the person had supposedly gone away with a, whoever and was now in the next city over or next state or, or whatever, we would get the information on where the person was supposed to have gone and we would have called the police agency in that jurisdiction and asked them to make contact. Um, yeah, exactly. exactly. And that's, yeah, that's exactly what should have happened. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty standard, you know, across the board. Um, you just can't do a welfare check. And again, it's, uh, it's one of those things that, you know, and, I, and I'll kind of backtrack to, to show you how that, how that process played out and really how it should have played out, in my opinion, with law enforcement. But when I started, you know, this investigation and, and took it, and, and especially right after we had our first meeting with law enforcement, you know, the first thing I did with the family is said, look, you know, I want to interview all the family, friends, you know, everybody. Uh, I even interviewed a friend of, of Nancy's, and she was a really nice, nice elderly lady, and, and she had said herself, she says, you know, Nancy doesn't talk to me anymore. Um, I don't get emails and updates from her. She goes, we've been friends for 40 years. I just don't understand it. So here you didn't just have kids that were saying something. You also had a family friend who knew the kids but really wasn't close to the friends. And, uh, and I like to, like when I investigate, you know, I use what's called an elimination process. So I kind of, kind of like going backwards in a way, I guess. I, I like to eliminate everything I can, and then often you're left with the answer or you're definitely a lot closer to the answer, and, you know, almost to the point you can reach out and touch it. And so with me, you know, I'd eliminated everything. I'd been going everywhere just going backwards, and I finally got just left with the fact that, you know, something just was not right. If this was Nancy calling, then she was either being forced to make these calls uh, it was under duress. Uh, she was having a medical issue and, and just not standing what she was doing. It was clearly a problem with her, um, and there was no doubt about that. So, you know, what I told the kids, I said, look, there's an easy way to solve this. I said, you have an active email, and you've got some active phone numbers, so give them to me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out to her. So, so I reached out to her just like law enforcement did, and I did that through uh, uh, the man that she had taken off with. I, I had his email or an email he was using that the kids had. I had an email that their mother was using. And, you know, you talked about the email, how it was different in your intro there. And 
he spelt cactus wrong. So, so basically, another account was created, and they, the C and the T were backwards, so they spelt cactus wrong. Nancy Hartz's real email had cactus in it, and it was spelled correctly. The new email didn't. And so, you know, the question became, why would the mother just change her email? If she's got an active email working, why wouldn't she just stay with it? So that also was a red flag. But I called, I emailed, and eventually I got an email back from the guy that she had left with. Uh, and I, had, I just said, look, you know, I, I need to speak to Nancy Hartz. I don't, you know, I don't want to talk to you. I just want you to relay a message to her. I need to speak to her. And he responded back and said, well, she's already talked to law enforcement, and she's, you know, she just doesn't want nothing to do with the kids and, and, you know, and kind of along those lines. And I responded back and said, listen, I don't really care who he's, or who she spoke to. I don't, I don't care what's going on. I said, I need to personally speak to her myself. And, and I was pretty, you know, I work these cases. I'm, I'm a tad bit aggressive, I suppose, and, and you kind of have to be. But I just said, look, I said, until I speak to her, I will keep tracking you down until I find you guys and can personally speak to her, and I'll never go away. So, you know, she just needs to call me. And, and it was maybe two weeks after that, and I was driving down the road. My phone rang, and it was a 702 number, and I, I didn't I, – ha, you know, so many other things have been going on for the last couple of weeks that I wasn't even thinking it. And I answered the phone, and, you know, here was a person claiming to be Nancy Hartz, saying, you know, I, I heard you wanted me to call you and talk to you. And so I, I pulled over and started talking and asking questions. And, and uh, it was very believable, um, very believable. And the, and the voice, you know, I, you could take it that it was an elderly woman. Um, so it was very believable, but, but nonetheless I knew there was something wrong. Unfortunately for me that day, I did not have a recorder in my vehicle with me, and I was so upset that I didn't record the call. But I met with the family. I relayed what I was told, they assured me again that that was complete nonsense. And I said, well, look, I told her that I would call her back or I would request for her to call me back. I said, so let's, I said, why don't you devise three, three questions that only your mother would know, not something that somebody could find in her, you know, a box of her goodies or photo albums or her, you know, social security card or driver's license which is what law enforcement had asked. So they said, what's your driver's license number? What's your social security number? Well, you know, if you're, if you're abducting somebody or stealing their identity or a combination of all that, you're already going to know those answers. Um, so, so I said, make up questions. There's no way that anybody would know. And so I, they gave me three questions. I emailed this person claiming to be Nancy Hartz and said, look, you know, give me a call back. I, I want to talk to you again. So one day the phone rings, maybe two, three days after, and here's the person claiming to be Nancy Hartz again. And I said, look, I want to ask you some questions. And initially it was, you know, the response was, well, you know, I feel like this is a real invasion of privacy. And, and I said, I understand that. I said, but the easiest way, if, if you're really Nancy Hartz and you want me and your kids and everybody to go away and leave you alone, I said, the easiest way to do that is just prove to us that you're alive and well, and everybody will leave you alone. And eventually you know, they said, okay, I'll answer your questions. So I did the three questions. At the, at the end of it, the kids didn't even know this. I had created my own question. And that fourth question was, what was the color of that Dodge Charger that you had when the kids were growing up? And right away, this person says, oh, it was like a bluish green. 
and it was a front wheel drive. Of course, anybody that owns a Dodge Charger from back in the in the 70s and 80s knows that vehicle was never a front wheel drive vehicle. That's that's a muscle car, and uh, and so you know I just I kind of just let him go on and talk about it and everything. And of course, their mother never owned a Dodge Charger, and so I took those questions and the recordings to the uh, to the kids. As soon as I played it for them, they all just, I mean, they broke down crying, you know, pretty much fell off their chair. They were just like, that's not my mother. That is not my mother's voice. And so at that point, the questions didn't really matter, but I told them about the fourth question. And uh, and so it really it was with, we took that information and that evidence, and that's what we took to law enforcement to convince them that they absolutely needed to reopen that case because, of course, they had told the kids that that case was closed. And so for us to get it reopened, we had to present that to them. And I actually gave them copies of the entire audio files. I gave them transcripts, um, all that stuff. So so that's really how it kind of all transpired and how we were able to get them to reopen it. Well, Lyle, in your experience in law enforcement and in investigating missing persons cases, how many times have you ever heard of a mother saying, I want nothing to do with my children, so just leave me alone. I'm gone. I'm never going to return. And especially one that's 71 years old that had a decent relationship with her kids. Yeah, never Never. I'd never come across that. I've, you know, I've worked a lot of different cases, not just missing person cases and where it involves, you know, mothers, fathers, children, things like that. And and they, they tell me that they don't want nothing to do with that parent or that child or, you know, whatever. And so, so I have seen that, but not, not in missing person cases. And I, again, I think what, for me, what this all kept revolving around is that there were, there was an easy fix to this. If this was a woman who really was trying to disconnect from her family. The simple process was to just go in, and I'd even said, just like Denny had said a minute ago, I'd even told this person, I said, look, I said, wherever you're at, because they didn't want to tell me where they were at, and obviously now that's all understandable, but I said, you know, we just want to, uh, I said, wherever you're at, I said, why don't, I said, you don't even have to tell me. I said, tell law enforcement, they'll arrange for you to go into a local agency or have a local agency drive out to where you're at. They'll confirm it's you. They'll confirm you're okay. And and then that's it. We're done. And I said, you know, then if, if that's really the case and your family doesn't want to leave you alone, go get a restraining order or do whatever you want. I said, but right now, I said, the only way that anybody's going away on this end is we got to physically see you. I said, I cannot tell your children in good faith that you are alive and well by talking to a mystery voice over a telephone. I said, it's just not going to happen. And of course, it was constant resistance because, of course, in the end, we know now that that was not uh, Nancy Hart's. Well, when when you brought this evidence uh, to the authorities, uh, the recordings and so forth, um, now you, you're trying to get them to reopen their investigation. Uh, what type of greeting did you get from that? In other words, you're, you're in, in a sense, questioning their initial investigation uh, and that perhaps that they closed the case prematurely. Uh, generally speaking, if, if not this case, if you want to go general, uh, do you get welcomed with open arms? Do you get resistance? Do you get the animosity or does it vary from case to case? 
Well, you know, oddly enough, you know, in my the years that I worked in Nevada, um, my relationship with Las Vegas Metro was amazing. Um, but it, it's a bit different in the area that I'm in. Um, and so I think, I think there is a lot of animosity. I think there, there is a lot of jealousy. There is a lot of different things. Um, and, you know, it, it would seem that the consensus is that, you know, law enforcement does not want to be questioned or second-guessed or, you know, they don't really want to have a relationship with a private investigator. Uh, it doesn't matter what your background was. It doesn't matter if one time you were both, you know, on the same same block. It just doesn't. It doesn't seem to matter. And and initially they just they think that you're as that you're foolish. I think. And of course they don't like when you eventually bring evidence to them. And I and I understand that because you know you don't you don't want mud on your face no matter who you are or what you are. So so I, I think a lot of them and especially in my area because you have to remember this is the thirty you know at this point this was the thirty fifth case I'd worked and it wasn't the first one that law enforcement had huge amounts of mud on their face. I'm not talking about just a mistake. Um, and I'm usually the guy that that finds it. I mean, I, the last three cases I've worked in this area, law enforcement dropped the ball, and I came in and solved the cases. So they know who I am as soon as I get going, and they probably already know that going to get solved where they didn't solve it because they know my reputation. So I think it does – it's a shame it's that way because I've always said it doesn't matter who solves the case as long as the case gets solved and, and you, you figure it out. That's all that matters, and it should be a collective effort of the family, a uh, collective effort of investigators that the families may hire to help, uh, local law enforcement, media, press, whatever it takes. If, if my mother was missing, I would want everybody and anybody that could help to help, and I can assure you that if you're law enforcement, you'd want it to be the same way. So. So I'm not sure why it ends up being that way, but, you know, unfortunately it does. And, you know, I can't speak across the country. I can more just speak, you know, more local and, and uh, you know, the local cases, Arizona cases, stuff like that. Yeah, the, the, the resolution should be what everyone wants. Um, unfortunately, it appears a lot of t- times it takes a back seat to maybe some ego issues and so forth. But... Um, right. At any rate, uh, so after you got the uh, authorities to reopen the case, uh, what 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 had transpired after that? Well, uh, you know, as they they started doing their own thing, and of course we kept on them. You know, one of the things I tell the family, you know, if these cases are going to get solved, you know, a lot of people in these cases, family especially, they they give me a lot of credit, and I tell them, look, obviously the things I'm doing are definitely helpful. But what really, really makes a difference in these cases more than anything is family members who do not give up, who are very aggressive, who demand answers and demand updates from whatever the agencies are involved. And and I think and they go to the press and they use the media and they use every available resource. And it's families that do that that then you know, whether it's finding me or whoever, it's the families initially that have to be aggressive and, and go after it and not go away no matter what they're hearing. Um, so, you know, the family stayed involved. Law enforcement claimed they were doing their thing, which we know they were doing some stuff. Um, I continued to investigate and continued to try to locate. And, 
eventually, you know, we it was our collective efforts that uh, this guy that uh, uh, left with Nancy Hartz, uh, he was located and uh, taken into custody, and and we then discovered that his his real name was uh, Robert Carnikin. Um, we found that he was a, a fugitive out of Canada. He'd actually left Canada almost 22 years ago. He was in the United States illegally for 22 years. Um, he had three different driver's licenses, one in Arizona, Nevada, and Montana. Uh, law enforcement initially told us that they couldn't find a driver's license um, on him. We, I actually, I'm a private investigator. I just walked into the DMV because and, and I, I can pull DMV records, and they gave me <laughs> his entire file. Uh, he, he had a driver's license, a photograph, um, everything, so it was easy to get. I provided that uh, to law enforcement as well, um, and it appeared that this was a guy that had spent 22 years in our country um, and dedicated his life to identity theft, fraud, and uh, and obviously, you know, the the trickery and fraud of women that he would meet, and uh, and then he would uh, assume their identities and and uh, do a lot of other stuff. And eventually, he was, you know, he was found to be connected to several other people as well. So, I, I guess the. Uh... A question that's got to be asked, and unfortunately, I don't think the answer is going to be a good one. Whenever the answer gets there, is where is uh, Miss Hartz? Well, you know, one of the things we discovered was, you know, that Nancy Hartz was obviously missing, and he was not. Um, we also started learning that he was meeting women. Um, on these online dating sites, and he would typically look for, you know, women in their late, well, not always late 60s, but seemed like early 70s, mid-70s. Um, he would look for women that were vulnerable, lonely, um, and, you know, just women who really were looking for, you know, that were missing the whole love and romance and partnership thing, and, and so he seemed to focus on them. He uh, He definitely... We, we discovered there were other, other women involved. There was a woman out of Dolan Springs. Uh, her name was Vernon Clayton. She was 73, which that's very close to the Kingman area where Nancy went missing. And then there was another name or another lady, uh, Jane Lindley, who was 77. She was out of Las Vegas. Uh, Verna was last seen in 2008, and Jane was last seen in November 2011 in Las Vegas. Um, we started talking to those people. Law enforcement was talking to those people. It was becoming obvious that um, you know he was connected, and this was not the first time. And when law enforcement finally located him, he was living in a house outside of a little town called Yucca, which is just outside of Kingman, Arizona, only about maybe 20, 20 miles away. It's in between uh, Kingman, Arizona, and, and Lake Havasu, Arizona. And uh, they found um, all those women's driver's licenses still in his possession. He was living with another woman. Um, who he convinced to sell her house in San Diego and move to Yucca. And so that lady had no idea that she was probably uh, weeks away from being the next victim. Um, and so they found lots of things, uh, especially things that would involve identity theft. I won't get into too much detail on it because of the case is still obviously active and open, but they found a lot of things that, 
that belonged to all these women, and uh, it became apparent that you know, these women probably did not meet with a good fate. Uh, none of them have ever been heard from again from their families or friends. And none of, so, none of uh, no remains or anything have been recovered. No, we we continue. Uh, you know, I have a I actually have a uh, a search team that works with me on these cases, and so we have continued uh, to conduct searches, um, and we're actively and currently still organizing um, search operations looking in different areas. We have a lot of leads and a lot of other areas. Uh, my understanding is law enforcement is not actively looking because they don't feel that they have enough leads to get out and look. We're, we're more taking the proactive stand and, and hitting mine shafts in a lot of these areas. We're trying to track his habits, uh, areas that he used to go to and you know we're trying to look in different areas we we do have a good lead in a location and you know we're going to be focusing our efforts there probably in the next uh, next couple months I, I think this guy will be a creature of habit based on his who and what he is and I, I think he I think if we find one body we're going to find you know definitely more than one body so I, I think he found himself a spot that, that worked just like he found a technique that worked and he stayed with it for many years. I think he also had an area that, that worked well for him to, uh, to uh, get rid of people. And, and I, again, I believe that when it's all said and done, and if, if one day we all get lucky enough to find one of these women that we'll probably find more than one. Good. Is he still, as far as you know, locked up? I mean, on, on the fraud or identity theft or stuff, or has he made bail? Or yeah, he's currently uh, he's currently in Mojave County Jail in Kingman, Arizona. Um, the only thing that they've been able to uh, link him to um, is weapon charges and identity theft. Um, he's not been charged with anything to do with the three women. And the the trial begins on the weapon identity theft begins on January 31st, um, but nothing on the women because that's still active. Um, we did find uh, law enforcement went out to the house where he was living with this other lady in Yucca. They they conducted a couple of searches out there. Uh, then I took my team out there, and within literally 15 minutes, we found a cell phone just tossed over the fence of this house. That's a chain link fence, uh, so it's not something you can't see through. But the property property is a fenced in property, but the ownership property exceeds beyond the fence they put in. So, you know, the property was about an acre of fenced in, but then, you know, the actual property was, was around I think it's like three and a half acres or something like that. So so even over the fence was technically still part of their property. Uh took our team in and we found a uh we found a cell phone, and it was just the front of the cell phone. The battery, the SIM card, and the uh, the cover was missing. Uh, so we just started to conduct, you know, we marked the phone, and then we started to conduct a search throughout that whole little spot. We were able to find the battery, the back cover, and the SIM card. The SIM card had been bent in half. It was obviously obvious from, the, from how the phone was, was laid out that we knew right where he had been standing on the other side of the fence, him or someone obviously threw the phone, and you know they, they removed the SIM card because they felt that that 
had information that they wouldn't have wanted anybody to find. Uh, and then the SIM card fell first, then it was the battery cover, then it was the battery, and then it was the phone. And that started from literally a foot from the fence, and then each piece to the farthest point, which was the heaviest part of the phone, was probably about 20, I think it was 21 feet, 22 feet, something like that. The, we contacted law enforcement immediately and told them that we had found a phone over the fence of the property where he was living. So they came out, recovered the phone, and uh, subsequently they were able to get that phone reoperating and discovered that the phone that had been calling me uh, pretending to be Nancy Hart's was that phone. So we actually found the phone that was the phone that had been calling me pretending to be Nancy Hart's. Um, and we've since then, when I, I went to court to listen to him talk, and I'm 100% convinced that the voice that was talking to me on the phone pretending to be Nancy Hart's is actually uh, Robert Carnican himself. Uh, the, the tones, the, uh, the pitch, uh, the word choices, all that stuff. So Mojave County has sent that out for voice analysis, and they've actually called me and requested if I know an expert in voice analysis, and I'm, I'm already set them up with one that I've used in the past. Um, and so now we're just waiting for the results to come back from that. But, but we got lucky and we got out there and found the phone. It's, uh, this is really uh, taking me a little while to uh, digest <laughs> this whole thing. It, it's right. quite a quite a deal. How, how uh, was there any way to tell uh, how much total money this guy could have taken from the three victims that you know of? Yeah, I mean, law enforcement obviously has more of that information because you know they can serve subpoenas and you know all these different things but based on what i've been able to track um you know it's it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars because you know he would he would get these women to sign everything over by all kinds of means um he had all kinds of techniques and and things that he would use and and he would get those techniques to fall through because these women would be so in love with him that they couldn't get past you know being being realistic and, and, and being smart. They, they were making bad decisions. I've seen young people do this, you know, over young. So some people say, well, elderly people might be more vulnerable, but I've, I've seen cases where young people make the same thing. I think this, the love romance thing, it's easy to get tied up. So I, I think he just cashed in on that, that theory. And then the fact that they were elderly and lonely and, and uh, so he could get them to give, you know, sign everything. So in the end, I mean, even when they located him, he had several firearms that's part of his charges, and several of those firearms were traced back to the women that he uh, he had taken. And uh, so there's money, there was property, there's guns, there's, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. Social Security checks that were being, uh, he was still collecting their money. He was still collecting Nancy Hartz's Social Security up until the day he was arrested. So, Papers, uh, and, and I'm sure there's much more. I'm just, you know, I'm not being told all of it. Did uh, let's talk for a second about how guys like him you know, operate. For example, he used apparently the internet and the uh, uh, I don't know if you want to call it dating service, but uh, you, you know, meeting people online uh, and, and apparently used it quite well. Uh, are 
people should know? Uh, well, first of all, should people get involved with these online deals at all? I mean, if they're looking for companionship or something even more than that, uh, is there a better uh, a better source to find it, a better way to find it, a safer way to find it? Uh, and if you do end up going with the online uh, route, are there any certain things uh, that should be red flags right off the bat that if you see or, or, or hear or email certain things that you want to run like hell? Yeah, I mean, it definitely is. You know, we live in a, you know, in a day and age where, you know, everybody, the Internet um, is, you know, it's, it's everybody's life with social media, Facebook, um, you know, and it's not just elderly. It's kids, young people, all ages are on there for all different reasons and exposing their life. Uh, you know, I'm one of these people that I can't stand Facebook. I use it to promote my businesses and my companies, but you'll never see it. You know, like I see people on there, here's a girl, and she's like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, here I am on the lake today, and here I am with my kids over here today. I'm, I'm not a proponent of that. Now, there's lots of settings, and there's lots of things so that you can make sure that only tight family and friends and all that stuff. I'm just not a proponent of it. But with that said, I think when it comes to dating with these online dating sites, you know, it seems to be the wave of the future. Um, I, think, I think you're always better off to meet somebody you know, because you work with them, uh, because a friend of yours, you know, knows them and has known them. They've been a friend of the family. You know, more of the traditional means of how you meet somebody. Um, I think that's always going to be better. However, that alone is not a guarantee you're meeting a good person. I've worked cases where uh, a friend says, oh, I know this great guy, and introduces them to a, to a girl, and they start dating. And the next thing you know, uh, there there's so many things wrong about it that, you know, and that they would have never known, and even the friend that introduced them didn't know. So, you know, everybody's got skeletons in their closet, and you know, it's your job when you start to see somebody to figure out what your what your strategy for that. If you're if you're a person that's going to go online and meet people, then you you need to have a plan and a strategy. And I think that you know, definitely a background check. Um, and that person doesn't even have to know you're doing it. And so, if you find somebody and you like them. The first time you should meet with some family or a friend, and it should just be a cup of coffee, and you know, have a son or a daughter there with you. If that person really is genuine, then they shouldn't have a problem with that, especially in this day and age, and especially if you're an elderly person. Um, and then I think that for the elderly people, listen, you know, and anybody really, listen to your family and friends. I think if Nancy Hartz would have listened to her children and their concerns, at least at least complimented some of the things they were saying, she would undoubtedly be alive today. And so, you know, some people just rebel against their kids. I've seen this a lot in these kinds of cases, and they just they don't want their kids telling them what to do. But I think it's important that people listen to people like me and, and people that do this and say, look, you know, it's not your kids. It's that you really need to listen to these people. Um, and they got gut instincts. And with Nancy Hart's kids, they had gut instincts right from the beginning. They did not like this guy. They felt like he, everything he was saying was a lie, which it turned out to be. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the mother just chose her feelings for this guy over, you know, the kids. So I always tell people, go with and listen to the people that have always been there for you before you listen to a complete stranger. And really that makes sense. And 
So there's really no reason to not do that. So, so a background check, listen to your family and friends, um, and don't let love or the thought of a relationship or anything cloud your judgment. You know, keep your thinking cap on. And, you know, if it's really love and if it's really going to work and if they're really a real person and they're who they say they are, then they're not going to be offended by any of that stuff. Um, they're going to be understanding and caring about it. It's not going to be something that's going to, uh, to bother them. And, uh, and I think that's the biggest thing. Like I said, I'm proponent of background checks. My nieces, you know, when they were still dating and stuff, uh, you know, they, I'd make them give me the guy's name and do a background check on them all the time just because I was so protective of them and stuff. But, uh, <laughs> but I, think, I think today, background check, online dating, and, man, listen to your family and friends and really follow your instincts more than your heart to start with. Good advice, for sure. Uh, Delilah, we're just about out of time. Do you have any uh, uh, final questions for Lyle? Um, not, in the, not in the sense of a question, but I, I'm really happy to get all this information <laughs> because I guess, you know, Denny, we fit into that elderly category. <laughs> not that I'm looking yeah, I, for anything, <laughs> but, but it's nice to have all of these tips. But, you know, obviously... Uh, Facebook and, and social media channels have that double-edged sword. Um, it's very, it's almost like a companion to a lot of, of people who don't have someone in their lives and friendships are made that are good. Um, and But the other side of it is, you know, you have to be very, very careful. Careful, careful, careful. And as Lyle said, keep on the thinking cap. Don't... Uh... Don't rush into stuff. Um, anyway, uh, we're out of time. We're going to have to wrap it up here. Lyle, thanks so much for being with us and sharing your experience in this fascinating case and other cases. And obviously, we just touched the tip of the iceberg with uh, various things we could talk with you about. So I hope you'll come back on the show again. Well, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to meet both of you. I hope that people listening, uh, you know, take this advice and. And uh, anytime you want me back on, I'd be happy to come on and talk about anything you'd like. Very good. Uh, thanks again, and also thanks to our listeners. Until next time, keep that thinking cap on and stay safe. isn't always better unless we're talking about full-size vans these beasts do more than get you from a to b they have so much space a man can live in it with shag carpeting waterbed and a sweet lava lamp these mobile abodes have all the comforts of home with quality parts and plenty of napa know-how you can keep the original tiny house running longer stronger that's napa know-how napa know-how napa know-how napa guy knows the only way you'd give a freshly minted driver a brand new car is if he promises to never drive it. 
Instead, let him grind the gears and knock over the neighbor's mailbox in something a little more suited to his skill level. And with over 500,000 parts and a little nap of know-how, he can safely drive something that's nearly as old as he is. It's not perfect, but it's perfect for him. That's Napa Know-How. Napa Know-How. 